Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 161 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we compared the virtues of the new Apple iPad and the Windows Surface Pros. In this episode, we go back to the future and look at the return of something from long ago, ad blockers. Who would want to block ads, you might be wondering? Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about ad blockers, our current ad experiences, and kind of what we think about the whole niche in general. In our second segment, we'll talk about my first reactions to the Windows Surface Book. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, let's talk about what I guess I'd call the potential resurgence of ad blockers. Ad blockers aren't new. They've been around for a while. Extensions for my Chrome browser have been around for a while that can block just about any ad that appears on a web page. And I should say any ad that appears in Java, uh, it blocks certain kinds of ads. Uh, Lately, though, um, I think that there's been a little bit of a resurgence, at least in the idea of ad blockers, because Apple, in the latest version of iOS and iOS 9, they enabled the ability to block ads in the Safari browser, which is really, it's not necessarily a first for mobile platforms, but for the iOS system, it really is a first. I think that's brought the topic of ad blockers back into the forefront. And I think we're starting at least on the tech front to see people start to talk about that again. I'll reiterate your question, Dennis, and say, why in the world would anyone object to ads? I mean, um, the whole internet monetizes because of ads. If we didn't have ads, we might not have the internet. Fair? I think that's that's a fair comment of the current state of affairs. and But I don't know whether the whole notion that the whole Internet should monetize off ads, maybe, I, it's, I think it's time to question that. I mean, it's sort of like has uh, the whole ad train gone off the tracks. I mean, everybody everywhere has decided that the business plan and monetization is ads. And so the... The experience of everything seems to change. Twitter now has all these promoted tweets. Um, Everywhere you you look, there's there's an ad, whether it's, you know, traditional web experience, whether it's mobile. You know, looking at TV, it's it's shocking to me that there are like four-minute commercial slots in, in most TV shows, which is – I don't know even know how I could watch TV anymore with, without, a DV, <laughs> without a DVR. So uh, – and and then there are sites – I guess, Tom, I, I spend so much – so much of my internet experiences through Feedly and RSS uh, feeds that I don't see the the amount of ads that are on a, in, any given page. Um, and when I actually go to a site, I'm, I'm sometimes shocked how many ads are on a given page. And there are certain uh, sites that I don't even like to go to anymore. And, and I'm not particularly singling one out, but it's just a good example for me that, that I really noticed, which is Law.com, where it seems like I have to run through an <laughs> ad thicket of, of pop-up ads and other ads just to try to read a, a normal story. Yeah, and I guess I should start out by saying, to be fair, uh, like you, you don't see a lot of ads because of your RSS feeds. 
I'm the same way. I'm going to be interested to see where we go on this topic in the next couple of minutes because I my ad experience is not tremendously horrible because I use feeds and with feeds, there's no ads. If I want to go and read that story online um, and go into a browser, that's when I get to the ads. But also to be fair, I think that, and, and there've been some studies that show this, they can show where eyes track on a web page. And I think my eyes, like many people's, have become conditioned to understanding self-consciously where ads are on a page. They're usually on the left, they're usually on the right, here's the text. And my eyes go straight to that. I don't ever recall seeing ads on pages. I don't, I I just don't look at them. My eyes don't go to them, which I think is why the ads that I hate the most are built to combat people like me who just are naturally not looking at the ads. And the one that I hate the most is the ad that overlays the entire page just a few seconds after the page loads. Uh, You can tell it's coming, the page will load, and then all of a sudden it'll go a little bit dark, which makes me wonder. And all of a sudden there's a big banner that appears over everything. You can't see anything around it. It's a banner that either has a little tiny X in the corner, and you got to look to find the X because the X isn't always very easy to find, or there's a link somewhere on the page that says, no, I'm not interested in this great offer that you have to, I'm, I'm a bad person and I'm not interested in your offer. Um, I, I, that to me is the most annoying. I guess I would say like you, you know, you're seeing Twitter featured ads and things like that. I'm not a fan of sponsored results at the top of Google or other sites like Yelp or TripAdvisor. And I guess I'm not a fan because they've gotten to the point where they blend in too well. It's hard to tell sometimes that they're ads. The little ad button on them is faint. It's not easy to see. I think it's always part of a trick, uh, you know, the the tricks that advertisers are using to get people to look at things because people are getting more sophisticated about avoiding ads, about not looking at ads, about finding ways around them. And so I think that these are all representative of, you know, the advertising industry's attempts to make us pay attention. Well, and you raised a a number of great points I know that that we're going to dive into. I mean, the the thing of that you're talking about, especially the video ads that that pop over a page, I I sort of call it the Forbes.com effect because that's where it always seems the most noticeable to me is I'll I'll see a link to an article on Forbes.com and you go there and I sort of see the, my recollection is you see the headline, you see the article, but before you can stop reading this this ad pops up and it could run like 15 seconds sometime. And, and, and I think that's the other thing, the video ads, you know, things that play sounds or run movies uh, before you realize what's going on, you know, especially if you're in a work setting or, you know, you're even at home and you're, you know, looking at something on a tablet and all of a sudden something starts playing and, you know, my wife goes, what in the world are you doing over there? And, you know, so, so I think there is that aspect and of them. And I think it's this, this battle for attention um, that's going on. And then all these, you know, different techniques that the people are trying to get us to somehow click on the ads. And I was uh, doing some experimenting last night and uh, so I installed a new ad blocker called Refine and I'll talk about that but as I paid attention to what I was doing on the web I actually ended up I guess clicking on maybe two or three ads probably three ads and in each case it was totally by accident it was like they had placed them at a place where I was likely to rest my finger on my tablet or that I was doing something else and then I accidentally clicked on them which I don't I don't even know what those ads were for but it's it's not a great experience uh but 
the advertising model has become so essential to to what we do. Maybe time we should go back in history because we've seen this this sort of frustration with with ads before and and the use of ad blockers, which seemed like. You know, a long time ago, um, it got to be a big problem. You can sort of, I mean, many people like me uh, attribute part of the rise of Google as a search engine over uh, AltaVista, you know, dealt with the whole notion of ads and clutter and 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 how Google uh, was a, a, a very s- simple thing. And then I think the thing that got to be really annoying were the pop-up ads. Uh, but most of the browsers now make it really easy to block those pop-ups. So there's like a whole new generation of ads that, uh, you know, each raise their own difficulties. But in the past, there's we definitely had ad blockers before, and it seems like they sort of slipped off the radar. And I don't know if it's because the browsers did so much or that these these types of ads have really come back in the mobile world. Well, you know, I think that uh, if, I, if I'm if i thinking back to the good old days of ads, the first thing that I think about is the pop-up ad, which was, to me, the early version of the really annoying ad. But that was really pretty quickly dealt with, I think. The browsers were very quick to develop the pop-up blockers, which I think had the potential to solve that problem entirely, which led to a problem uh, because not all pop-ups are harmful. They're not all advertising. A lot of sites were were creating pop-ups. Now, whether this is good web design is, is up for debate, and we could talk about that later. But a lot of websites would build pop-up windows into, into just their functionality to where something would pop up to give you information, and you'd have to go in and whitelist that website to make sure that the pop-up blocker didn't block the, the pop-ups for that website. So, And I think as we get to start to talk about these new ad blockers on iOS, I think they have the same kind of all-or-nothing approach to looking at ads, which I think is is really, uh, it can be limiting. Um, and I think that it kind of shows what we've seen that's happened with iOS. Do you want to talk briefly about kind of your experience? I loaded an ad blocker. To be real honest, I tested it. I didn't notice a lot of effect. And so I basically stopped using it. But I think your your results are a little bit different. Want to talk about your experience with the ad blocker? Yeah. So I, I did a little research and there are a number of ad blockers out there that are highly rated. And I found an article that went through the top-rated ones, and as I typically do, I went for the top-rated free one, according to the recommendations I saw, which was something called Refine, R-E-F-I-N-E, and I tried it, and I went to a page that I always associate with having a lot of ads on it, and my experience felt very different. It seemed like it was the page was much better organized. It didn't feel as intrusive. It seemed like I could actually get to the substance better. And I don't know whether, you know, I didn't really do an A-B comparison in the way I, I might have, you know, a well-prepared uh, podcast host would have done. But just going on my sense, my memory of what my usual experience is versus what I saw, I just found it to be a big improvement. I did notice that when I installed Refine, it had sort of default settings and it talked about tens of thousands of rules that it had set by default to take care of ads and it allows you to customize and create your own rules which is you know in essence I think a good way of describing what ad blockers do that there are settings in there that are um, almost like an if then you know if 
you find this or if it's from this side or if it contains these things, then don't show it sort of notion. And so my experience with it was actually pretty good. So I'm, I'm happy that it's installed um, and I don't have this sense that uh, that I'm, I'm missing something significant. And then, as I said, I'd also last night, uh, I had accidentally, before I stalled Refine, accidentally tapped on a couple of ads that I had no intention of tapping on. So I was also glad that things were blocked in, in that way. I know that there's there's been some discussion and I guess maybe some controversy even uh, about ad blockers in iOS and the impact it has on especially smaller, you know, podcasts like ours, Tom, in, in a way, and people, bloggers who make money off of, of the ads, the banner ads that they do. Um, so I know there was, uh, you know, at least one ad blocker that came out that got pulled off the market, as I recall. So there is some controversy about these, not in terms of how the impact it has on us as individual users, but the impact that ad blockers might have on the, the whole ecosystem. Well, I want to take a step back and kind of talk about why this is a big deal, um, but then also some kind of ironic um, facts that I found out about this. Part of what makes this a big deal is that traditionally Apple is very proprietary with its operating system, that they don't let developers in to monkey around with the apps or the or some of the basic layers that, that typically belong to Apple, the same way that you might see with Google and Android. You know, Android lets the developers get access to everything, which which lets you do a whole lot more things. Um, Apple's starting to relax those. They, you saw it with the extensions and the widgets that came up. So that's, to a certain extent, that's changing. And that's how they're changing it here, is that they finally have allowed these developers to create these ad blockers for Safari. Right now, it only works works for Safari. It doesn't work for any of the other browsers if you use Chrome on your iPad or anything like that. Dennis, you've got the Refine. There's others like Crystal or Purify or OneBlocker. There's a ton of them. What's interesting about this is that I was kind of reading up on the history of ad blockers in, on mobile devices, and I read one article that, that mentioned that most users... Um, spend five to seven more times within apps on their phones or their tablets than they spend in a web browser on a mobile device. But when you look at total use of browsers all over the place, both on desktops, on laptops, on mobile devices, no matter where they are, 20% of all web browsing happens on mobile Safari. So just think about that. The 20% of all, quote, advertising could be on mobile Safari as well. Uh, so I think that the potential <laughs> the potential of the advertising for this could be huge. I don't think that's going to be the case, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more later. But what's really really interesting to me, and this is sort of the cynic in me, is that I think Apple may have had some ulterior motives in this. While the ads are getting blocked in Safari, they're not getting blocked elsewhere. So for example, as part of iOS 9, they rolled out their own news app, which frankly, I'm not a big fan of. I've heard other people be critical about. Some people really like it. What's interesting about this news app is that I've heard reports of people trying to look at articles on, in the Safari browser, and there would be a pop-up that blocked it that said, sorry, this article won't be ready until tomorrow. However, if you want to read it today, 
go to Apple News and you can read it today. Um, and then the interesting thing is, is that Apple News has advertising. So they're not blocking ads within their own app. They're blocking it within the browser. So uh, I, I think that's really an interesting and I hope I'm reading more into it than I really should. But that's, I think, interesting. Uh, one last thing, and I'll stop talking for a second, is, Dennis, you mentioned that one app got pulled. The, the app that I think you're talking about was an app by Marco Arment, who has done the fantastic uh, Instapaper. I know he's going to he's done an app that you're going to talk about as our parting shot. It instantly went to number one in the App Store. But then he took it down after a couple of days. And I think his position was that the ad blocking was all or nothing, which doesn't really match my understanding of how the ad blockers work and what you just described it. He said it either blocked all ads or none at all. And he thought that was too blunt. And I'm not sure I totally understand that, but that was at least the reasoning that he gave on his blog. I think he took the position that some people genuinely deserve to benefit from ads who are getting hurt. So people who are just out there trying to make a little money for apps that they develop, they sell ads on their page. They're not like the big multinational corporations that put ads on websites. He wanted to be able to differentiate and that his ad blocker wasn't able to do that. So there are a number of, I think, really important ideas out there. And so one of the concerns about ads is that the ads can be a big source of malware. Ads, to me, are really sort of interesting in their intrusiveness and and what we don't know about them, typically in terms of how they track us, uh, what might be contained in them, you know, what happens, where we go when we actually click on an ad can be a, a little scary. So there, there's that out there. That's one thing. And then, then I also think we go back to the notion of in advertising, what are we really giving people permission for and what are, what are we okay with? And let's go back to, you know, the, the famous clue train manifesto you know, about the web being a conversation, that there should be a conversation with customers and it should be there should be respect and, and trust and all of all of those things. But I, I think that the ads have just become really difficult to know what to deal with. And so I think when you give the example of if I'm inside an app and there are ads, I sort of think that's what I gave permission, you know, for, and in some case, you're, you're doing that explicitly, you know, where an app or a device, like I, there are Kindles where you, there, you pay one price without ads, one price at a lower price with ads, and, and you're making a choice about it. So you have control. So I, I think the, for me, what's sort of the problem is like, Everybody looks at every way that I want to uh, use the internet to, to use my devices as, as yet another way to just slam unwanted ads at me. And and that's what I don't like. I'm willing to, to make a, a trade-off and make an informed decision about when I'm going to be advertised to. And then, then also, this goes back to one of my usual themes, Tom, which I know, know you're probably tired of hearing about, but we live in this world of personalization. And I I sort of feel like I am in exchange for allowing somebody to have certain information about me. I want to have more tailored, more customized information sent to me. And so if by giving permission and information to somebody, I do get the, you know, that that sort of perfectly customized ad for something that I would really want, I'm going to be okay with that. But if all I'm giving is somebody another way to track me and to just slam unwanted ads at me, I don't think that's a very good bargain for me. I don't think it's a good bargain either. What I'm finding, and I think what you're kind of getting to and alluding to is 
that dealing with ads kind of takes place in two different ways. The first is what we've been talking about, the ad blocking, which um, is basically throwing up a brick wall to the advertisers and a little bit to a certain extent, defeats the purpose, doesn't get them the, the eyeballs that they need to uh, to be profitable to do their work. And frankly, from our standpoint, that may not make a difference or be a big deal. There are, however, uh, you know, you mentioned, you said when you get an app and it has advertising in it, if it's a free app, that's the price you pay for getting the free app. You can always upgrade to the uh, ad free, but they've established that that price is what the advertisers get for you not having to look at their ads. Similarly, I think that this past week, uh, Google announced that YouTube was going to have a uh, new version called YouTube Red, uh, which, frankly, I would love if I, if, to me, it's a little more expensive than I use YouTube for, but uh, for $9.99 a month, you can now get YouTube with no advertising. And I will tell you that in the, in the world of annoying ads, having a video ad pop up before a video on, on YouTube is one of the most annoying things for me, even though there is often a skip within five seconds. I still have to watch five seconds of the ad uh, to do that. Um, but that's $9.99 a month, which is a little more than I'm willing to pay for how much I use YouTube. Uh, there's another program actually called Google Contributor. Um, it's a program that's run by Google that allows users of the network to actually pay specific content providers, specific advertisers, a very small amount. You're not paying a lot of money. Um, but in exchange, you don't have to see any of the Google ads on any of those pages. And and um, so Google will take all that away from you and you're sort of making a micro payment. The payment goes directly to the advertiser. So like Marco Arment was talking about, if you have somebody that you do support, somebody that you do think is a worthy group to get some money, but yet uh, you don't want to see their ads. I think the contributor program is kind of an interesting uh, concept uh, that helps out both sides. No ads, but in exchange for a little bit of money. And that sort of goes to the question to me is, can more polite ads or more polite ways to, to raise money for the people that you, you know, you want to read or you, you want to have access to content, can that work better than where we are at in the current ad model? And are we really risking going back to as I said, the most intrusive, the most annoying, the most tricky of approaches to ads that have come from the past just because people have to get our attention. So, Tom, there's a podcast that both of us really like, uh, and we listened to it for a long time. But I got to tell you, when they run their ads, it seems like it's <laughs> double the volume of the show. And it's just it's, like television. And it's ridiculous. And it's that's one of the reasons I stopped listening to radio was these, these totally intrusive ads where if they gave me, uh, you know, a choice or I had, you know, uh, I felt that they considered that. I'm not really sure why they think that the listeners would would enjoy at all the fact that there's an ad blaring in your ears, especially if you're using headphones. It's 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 just the, the silliest thing. And you just go like, well, they have a platform. They have trust. They have confidence. It's the sort of thing where if they just did an ad or said they had a sponsor of the show, it would probably be incredibly effective. But I tune out those ads completely. And, and I've thought about, you know, not listening to to the podcast anymore be because that's so annoying. So I think there's some potential as, and, and I think the economic models may evolve over time because some of these approaches are, are just really annoying. 
time. I, th- I thought maybe it's not in our script, but I, th- I was wondering if we could, uh, we haven't talked about how this impacts on lawyers. Uh, maybe we can wrap up with some thoughts of how you and I think that lawyers might need to know something about ad blockers other than just trying to protect themselves. Well, I'm going to let you take the, the lead on that because speaking you know, generally from my legal perspective as a lawyer, I tend to view ad blockers more from the consumer perspective. And I think we've basically covered that is that how does that affect me? How does it affect my experience of the online world? And I think we've kind of covered that well in terms of how lawyers might look at it. I'm going to let you take the lead on this one. Okay. So I just did a presentation on uh, ethical rules and technology competence. So what lawyers need to know. And I was trying to you know, figure out places where lawyers needed to know something. And so maybe I'm in that mode. But when I was thinking about ad blockers, there's two things that really came to mind when, when I thought about this that lawyers might like to know to protect themselves and their clients. And the first is how does tracking and what information is uh, conveyed through the use of of ads on a page, and, and I think that could be really useful for lawyers to to know something about. And then the other thing is that as we go to this more personalized web experience, I don't know that a lawyer can say, "Let me just capture." a page and then I can say this is the page that the you know the other party in this case saw and this is what they reacted to because it could be that the ad blocker has completely changed that experience. And so the notion of say what is the evidence of what was on a page and what somebody saw is universal, I think is going away and ad blockers are just one more piece of that. Is that too far fetched idea time or am I on to something there? So I, I'll say that the first part, that first thing about uh, the tracking. I I don't know that it's far-fetched. I think that ads can certainly contain malware. They can certainly be dangerous. I'm skeptical or maybe I'm a little questioning about the amount of information that they can gather that would be harmful to an attorney or a client. I wonder about that. I think, though, that you're really onto something. If a web page's experience is is evidentiary, if it's relevant in, in litigation somehow, the fact that an ad blocker can alter that experience um, could be important. And I think it could alter it in either way towards that. I think there would have to be a fairly specific fact pattern for that to happen. But um, I, I think that's an interesting take on all of that. And I guess we'll just have to see uh, what the, I guess, what the future of ad blockers have to do on uh, this potentially evidentiary issue or, or other ways that lawyers might approach advertising on the internet. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. 
On our last podcast, Tom vowed to buy a new Windows Surface Book as early as he could possibly do it. He's done that, and I wanted to get an early report on Tom's early impressions. Tom, are you already a fan? So let's be accurate. On the last podcast, we didn't know about the Surface Book. It hadn't been announced. It had not. Uh, it was the one more thing that uh, Windows, that Microsoft had to offer when they announced the Surface Pro. Um, so we really only talked about the Surface Pro, and at the time, that was my next purchase. Uh, having looked at what the Surface Book has to offer, it became my next purchase instead of the Surface Pro. And I will say that despite uh, not having a ton of time to work on it, I am almost a complete 100% fan of the Surface Book. Let's do a quick introduction for people who may not be familiar. Surface Book is really what Microsoft should have done instead of the Surface Pro, in my opinion. Um, it's a laptop in, in that it has a fully functioning keyboard uh, and it has a monitor in it that works as a keyboard. You can fold it over. It looks a little bit like a book because it's got a little bit of a gap there that some people complain about, thinks that food and dirt and stuff can get in. doesn't bother me. Um, what's nice, though, is, is that there's a, a button that when you press it, you can remove the monitor and becomes a tablet. It's very thin, like an iPad. It doesn't really have any other buttons on it. it they call it your digital clipboard, which sort of makes me cringe. Um, but it is uh, a, a very versatile device. You can turn that tablet around, slide it back in, and turn it into a little convertible, and you can write on it. The pen basically comes <laughs> almost attached to it. The magnet is so strong, but it comes with a pen uh, that uh, goes a little bit beyond what Apple did with their iPad Pro pencil that they've debuted. It actually has an eraser on this pen. You can turn it over and, and erase with the top of the pen. I will say that I really like it so far. Um, it's very powerful. It's very fast. Uh, it's a little bit top-heavy. The tablet part of it makes it a little top heavy in the and so when I am sitting here I've I've grown used with my Surface Pro I've grown used to using both the keyboard the trackpad and the screen if I want to scroll on things I've done less scrolling with the trackpad or with my arrow keys than I do using the tablet and I notice here with it being a little top heavy that when I do touch it it kind of bounces a little bit some people are annoyed by that that doesn't bother me so much I guess maybe I don't touch it quite hard enough um, one of the nice features that uh, this has now on it is something called Windows Hello, uh, which is facial recognition. So you can train it to recognize your face, uh, and instead of a, uh, a password or a PIN, uh, it'll open up with your face. It's really and it really really works very well. I have to say that it, it has a premium feel. It's designed to compete with MacBook. I think some people would say it's not quite as premium as MacBook. I would say it's very close. It is the nicest Windows computer I've ever seen, and I and I take that shot at the people like Lenovo and Dell and those. Uh, I think. Windows really, uh, Windows, I keep saying Windows. I think Microsoft really knocked it out of the park here with their first attempt. It's something that probably should have come along a long time ago. How it competes with the MacBook, I'm not quite sure yet, but I think that as a Windows tool, it's very capable and I'm enjoying the heck out of it so far. Well, uh, Tom, it's interesting that you, you talk about how it will compete with the MacBook because I have the new MacBook, which I also have, you know, highly favorable comments on. And so my reaction was that the Windows Surface and probably the Surface Book, although in both the case of the Surface Book and the MacBook, the prices as you want to appropriately configure them can be pretty high. Yes. Um, but I I thought if, if you have to live in the Windows world, this really makes sense at this point. And Tom, you and I were both at uh, an ABA meeting in uh, South Carolina last week, and uh, friends of the podcast, Adriana Linares and Allison Shields, uh, were working on 
laptops that had touchscreens. And I have generally not been fond of that idea sort of ergonomically. I didn't think it made sense to me. But I saw them both do things using the touchscreen. It sort of changed my mind a little bit. And then, then also I had my wife looking at my new MacBook, something on my new MacBook, and she went to touch the screen to make something bigger to by expanding her fingers and was surprised that she couldn't do that. So I think that touch is becoming sort of more ubiquitous and, and something that we rely on. Um, so I that potential of it is is also interesting and then uh the other day i needed to you know i wanted to sign something and and i think the stylus when you're just doing a signature of something electronically that you need to you know pdf and send to somebody i think that stylus piece is actually kind of significant compared to what you can do with just a finger so i i think that in terms of the, as we go from, I know there's concerns these days about how tablets are doing in the market or how notebooks are doing in the market, but I think that um, the bigger iPad, the MacBook, the, the Surface Pros, I, I think are they're onto something, and and it's it sort of reflects the way that people actually want to use things these days. Yeah, two quick responses. Um, you're right that one thing I mentioned is is that this is not a cheap device. So that you know that's one thing that the Lenovo's and Dell's have the advantage on is cost. This is comparable, although it's actually probably the versions with the bigger hard drives and the more capabilities are more expensive than Macs, but they are comparable to the MacBooks. Um, I, I used to I used to say, and others used to say that the best Windows laptop is a MacBook running Parallels or running Windows on it. I I don't know that I can say that anymore. I think that this is the best Windows laptop now. Um, if you've got to live in the Windows world, I, I completely agree with it. The other the other thing that I'll mention is when you talk about using the touchscreen, uh, I was listening to uh, to MacBreak Weekly on uh, the Twit Network this week, and, and one of the people that were there basically said that using a touchscreen uh, on a laptop is just not normal, which I thought was a really kind of a harsh statement to say, and I posted to Twitter immediately that the Surface Pro has changed the way that I interact with a touchscreen and a laptop. And so I guess that makes me not normal. Um, I, I think we're seeing, we're starting to see a change with how people interact with laptops, some of them for the good, some of them for the, you know, strange or unusual to what people might think. But I definitely think that it represents a switch. And I, for one, um, am, am supportive of it because it makes sense in the way that I use my devices. You know, Tom, I just made a note that we should do a podcast where we talk about the whole notion of touch versus non-touch and keyboard and what's normal and, and what's not normal. So maybe yep. we'll do that in the, in the future. But now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, I think both Dennis and my parting shots are, uh, are of a similar vein. Um, I'm going to recommend a, another podcast. It is a podcast from WNYC uh, in New York. It's called Note to Self. The tagline is Finding Balance in the Digital Age. And they take a look at current technology topics and how to be human around technology. So the most recent version was how to deal with your photo clutter, how to deal with all the digital photos that you have and how to organize them, how to get them under control. They had an episode recently on having relationship through text messages. Uh, What's it like when somebody puts a cell phone on a table during a meal? Does that interrupt or affect the 
conversation. So there's lots of discussions on how technology affects us, and and it's more of a social aspect to technology and and the sociological things that that go on when we interact with technology and it interacts with us. Really fascinating, really interesting, short too, small podcast, so uh, very digestible, called Note to Self. Dennis? Well, Tom, you kind of previewed my parting shot based on what I actually wrote in the script I sent to you, but I had changed my mind. But I'm going to do so. Oops. I'm going to do too. So I uh, <laughs> and the reason I changed my mind was partly because I might have mentioned this before, but there's been a significant development. So I've switched over to the Overcast app for podcasts, which I I really like, um, and it went from four ninety nine uh, for the app to free exactly two days after I paid my $4.99. But I can live with it because I like the app so much. So somebody who wants, if you're disappointed with the uh, the podcast app in iTunes or you just want to start to experiment listening to more great podcasts, uh, I think the podcast app uh, on, on an iPhone is really good. There's a lot of features I, I really like on it. But the one I was going to switch to, Tom, comes from, I was at a, a conference where our friend Ben Shore was was talking about Microsoft OneNote, and I sort of knew this existed, but uh, and I've been using OneNote for many years, um, and I want to start using it more, especially at work. And he pointed something called uh, the docked view. That's D O C K E D, docked view in OneNote, and so you're able to just park along one side of your screen, and will stay there um, all day long uh, on top. A OneNote instance that you just call daily notes or whatever you want to call it. it works really well if you have multiple monitors or you have a really big monitor. And then during the day, you can just put things in there that uh, that come up. So it could be notes from calls, the phone number of somebody you want to call, web clippings, anything else like that. And then you just sort of have this place for all those notes that you might have used, post-it notes or, you know, like a, a little tablet uh, on your desk before. And it's... Uh, takes all the advantage of OneNote, makes it searchable, um, you know, you can do all sorts of, of other things. And it's just open there on the desk. It's really interesting, simple idea that I'm looking forward to using on a regular basis. I will say that using OneNote on a Surface is awesome. It really, those tools are really made to go together very well. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast... I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.